Good morning, Moraine Valley Church. <laughs> it's very exciting for me to um, just briefly step out of the women's ministry for a minute and have an opportunity to speak to our brothers as well as our sisters this morning. I'm very excited to be here and very, very privileged. Ava, thank you for the invitation uh, to be in this place today. And I'm extremely grateful to Ava and Pat and Josh for all of their encouragement and support during the time of preparation. And I have to say thank you to all the prayer warriors who I know have been praying. This is definitely a team effort. <laughs> so thank you. I'm going to begin right away with a question. Have you ever thought to yourself, it wasn't supposed to be this way? It wasn't supposed to be this way. Well, I'm going to start already. <laughs> um, you all know that life is full of disappointment, isn't it? Our life disappoints us. People disappoint us. We disappoint ourselves. We often struggle with fear, and we talk a lot about our fear. We fear the hard things that could happen. But disappointment comes in when those fears become reality. When our hopes and dreams go unfulfilled, when our expectations are not met, when things in life just don't turn out the way we thought that they would. Some of these disappointments are light and momentary, like the wrong paint color on the wall. <laughs> we can get over that eventually. Um, but some disappointments are deeply painful, and they carry long-term grief and sorrow. Now, for believers in Jesus, I have to say, the deepest disappointment is disappointment with God. The title of today's message is Resurrection Hope. The word hope has us looking forward to the future, doesn't it? It has to do with our desires and our expectations. And certainly, our hope as believers in Jesus is the hope of eternal life. We're all looking forward to heaven, to be with Jesus forever, aren't we? John 3.16 confirms this for us. It states clearly, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That is resurrection hope. It's also important to consider regarding hope, according to Hebrews 11, that hope is closely connected to our faith because it involves a certainty and a confidence. Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us, now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. So for us in the church, what this is telling us is that our hope is not based on a maybe, it's not anything iffy. It's not wishful thinking. It's not even positive thinking. Biblical hope is a sure thing because it's based on what God has already said and what God has already done. Our hope is about believing the promises of God because what he has said he would do, he has done. And so we know we can believe and trust him for what he says about our future. And so that sounds all great for our future. What about today? Can resurrection hope offer anything to us for our disappointment today? This morning, I'm bringing two stories. The first is a biblical story out of the scriptures, and the second one is personal. 
both of these stories, I believe, can offer us a picture of resurrection hope. The biblical story is the story of the raising of Lazarus. And that's found in John chapter 11. Now, the raising of Lazarus was the last of seven miraculous signs that were recorded by John in his gospel. These were seven very specific miracles done by Jesus that he did for the purpose of showing himself to be the very Son of God. And this raising of Lazarus was kind of like Jesus' miracle of miracles. It, was, it happened at the very end of his ministry when he was just about to go to the cross. In fact, this miracle is the miracle that finally motivated the Jewish leaders to devise a plan to have Jesus put to death. This is an amazing story, and it's one of my personal favorites because in this story we see the deity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus simultaneously on display in one miraculous scene. And this scene offers us a glimpse into the very heart of God. I'm excited to share with you today, hopefully, <laughs> what God has been teaching me through this passage and through this time. But I trust it will be significant for all of us today because this is a story of two women who are struggling with their pain of disappointment with God. Please, if you would, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11. Whatever you use, your Bible or your phone, and if you don't have one, please grab one of the Bibles from under the seats um, because we're going to read through a good portion of this passage, and I would really like it for you to be able to follow along. Um, this this uh, raising of Lazarus story has many, many levels of truth in it, and we're not at all going to be, be able to touch on all of them. But as we read through John chapter 11, I'm going to focus on three main points, and um, I will stop and talk about them as we go through, and they'll be highlighted up on the screen. We're going to look for three things, three things we can know about God in our disappointment. And as we enter into the story, just a little bit of the, the background setting, Jesus, of course, has been preaching and teaching in the areas in Jerusalem and around Jerusalem. But at this point, he has gone across the River Jordan to the other side, the east side of the River Jordan. He's evading the Jewish leaders who were trying to seize him because he had been claiming to be the Son of God. Okay, so John chapter 11, and let's start reading at verse 1. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. I'm going to stop here. So we're introduced here to the three main characters. These are three siblings who were friends of Jesus. Um, chronologically, if we were reading all through the Gospels, we would have first met Martha and Mary in Luke chapter 10. And there, uh, Martha is described as a woman of action. Martha is the busy doer. She's busy uh, preparing food and serving people. Mary, on the other hand, is the contemplative one. And she's described as sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to his teaching. Now, in this culture, 
the rabbis would travel from town to town with their disciples following along with them. And it was very customary that people in those villages that they came to would open up their home and offer them food and a place to rest. Martha's home was that place for Jesus. So he had spent much time with this family. Now, this event that's mentioned in verse 2 of Mary pouring perfume on the Lord is actually recorded in the very next chapter of John, in chapter, John chapter 12, but it's also recorded in Matthew and Mark. So it's a significant story, and we'll mention another word about it later. Um, But that's the event that he's referring to is going to take place after the raising of Lazarus. All right, that's enough of the introduction of these three people. I'd like you to focus on verse 3 and take notice of the message that the sisters sent. Lord, the one you love is sick. There's two things about this message that are very interesting to me, and they tell us a lot. First of all, um, the message is an indication of Jesus' intimate relationship with Lazarus. We're not told very much about Lazarus at all. We're told a lot more about the two sisters. But this very statement, the fact that these sisters, they didn't say, Lord, Lazarus is sick, or our brother is sick. It was the one you love. What a special title. And what an indication that this Lazarus, we don't know much about him, but this tells us that he was someone who was very near and dear to Jesus' heart. He's the one that Jesus loves, and everybody knew it. So these sisters had complete confidence that referring to to, uh, Lazarus with this phrase, that Jesus would know exactly who they were talking about. The second point that I think is important is in regards to the the sisters themselves. Notice that they, they don't send a request. They're not asking Jesus to do anything. They're making a statement. The one you love is sick. But that statement is loaded with expectation, isn't it? Because the expectation is, Jesus, as soon as you hear this, you're going to come. You're going to come, and you're going to do something about this. So we can really see a lot in just in one little statement. And the expectation, of course, for these sisters, they'd known Jesus throughout his entire ministry. They had watched him heal other people. Now they needed his help. Okay, let's go to verse 4. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. This um, verse is a very clear statement of our point number one. This is the very first thing to know about God in your disappointment, is that God always has a plan and a purpose for your situation. It's not always comforting (laughs) at the time when we're going through something. But it's incredibly helpful to remember we're going through something and we don't understand why it's happening, but we can know and trust that God has a plan and he's got a purpose for it. And in this uh, case, Jesus states very clearly the purpose here, the purpose for this sickness in Lazarus is for God's glory. This is for God's glory probably would have been puzzling to these disciples. That's who would have been hearing what he was saying. What does he mean? This is for God's glory. 
All right, let's go on with verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. Now, first of all, this um, reveals to us that Jesus was very purposeful in his timing. He waited two days, and then, okay, let's go. It's time to go. But I want you to look at verse 6, that word so, that little word. (laughs) Some of your translations might say yet, but the more literal translation is the word so. This is telling us that it's because Jesus loved these people that he stayed, that he delayed and waited. So this was on purpose, wasn't it? This would have been puzzling. This is not what you would expect from somebody who loves you. All right. We're going to skip through verses 8 through 10 because they're not really pertinent to what we're talking about. Um, The disciples are simply objecting to Jesus, saying, let's go back to Judea. They're reminding him, the people there are trying to stone you. Why would you want to go back there? And Jesus simply reassures them with the idea that he's walking in the light of his Father's will. I have a plan. We're going, so don't worry. All right, verse 11, let's pick it up. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but these disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So this reveals a second aspect of God's purpose. Letter B is that people may believe. God is always focused on people believing, and he's always concerned about the building of our faith. So he's talking to his disciples. We know they already believed in who Jesus was, but he's always deepening our faith. He's always showing us more of himself so that we may believe. Okay, let's move to verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. So let's account for these four days. It would have been one day for this messenger to get from Bethany, where Mary and Martha were, to get across the river to where Jesus was. So that's one day. Then Jesus waited two more days, and then it would have been another full day's travel for Jesus to get back to where Mary and Martha were at Bethany. So there's the four days. Why do we mention this? Well, again, for people who had followed Jesus, um, he had raised other people from the dead before. But those, those situations were very different. In each of those situations, like the raising of, La- uh, I'm sorry, the Jairus' daughter and the raising of the widow's son, Jesus raised those people on the very same day that they died. This was four days, not just four days that he's been dead, four days he's been in the tomb, dead and buried. So this points to the significance of the miracle that Jesus was going to do, something that he had never even done before. Um, 
So verse 20, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You can hear the deep disappointment in her statement, can't you? She expected something different from Jesus. Jesus, you love Lazarus. Why didn't you come? We hear disappointment, but we also hear faith. Because for Martha to even make this statement to Jesus, she's indicating that she truly believes Jesus has the power to make her brother well. So there's still faith even in her disappointment. Verse 22, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus offers her words of hope. But Martha, probably not quite sure what to think. But she continues expressing her faith, not knowing what else to say, <laughs> maybe. She's telling Jesus what she knows to be true about God. She's talking theology with Jesus. I know that God will give you what you ask. I know. I know, but there's going to be a resurrection, and my brother will rise again. Jesus says to her in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? So here Jesus is making a powerful statement. And this, much like the seven miraculous signs, this is one of seven I am statements that are recorded in John's gospel. And these were statements where Jesus made a very clear and powerful claim that he himself is the great I am. He is the son of God. And here, Jesus is identifying himself as the very source of resurrection and life. And he's also relating to Martha's theological mind. She, he, Jesus talks to her about faith, the faith that brings eternal life. And he speaks words to her of resurrection hope for all who believe in him. And specifically turns to her and says, do you believe this, Mary? Do you, or Martha, do you believe in who I am? Martha responds, yes, Lord. She replied, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. So Martha makes a strong confession of her faith in who Jesus is. It's very clear. And here, with this interaction between Jesus and Martha is a beautiful exchange between the Son of God and a simple woman of faith. Verse 28, after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside the teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. So Mary has an entourage <laughs> of people with her. Verse 32, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
She utters the same disappointing words as Martha, but what a different kind of response, right? Such an emotional heart response. That's Mary. She is desperate in her grief. And we see in Mary something very beautiful. We see an uninhibited vulnerability in the presence of God. Can you relate to that? (laughs) Uninhibited vulnerability in the presence of God. This brings us to the second thing that we can know about God in our disappointment. God can handle your disappointment. God can handle your disappointment. We've seen that both of these sisters were completely honest with Jesus about how they felt. And they didn't hesitate to tell him. They were disappointed in him. And Jesus doesn't turn away. He doesn't rebuke them. He engages with them. He receives them. He loves them. He stays with them. And this also shows us at this point that disappointment with God does not equal a lack of faith. Both of these women are demonstrating their faith. Martha made a very bold statement about her faith in who Jesus was. Being disappointed with God does not mean you don't have faith. It means you're disappointed. It means you're hurt. We can talk honestly to God, and I hope we can learn that from these sisters here. We, most of us understand the basics of how our emotions work. When we have a hurt inside of us, and we harbor that pain, we let it sit there, eventually it grows into something else, doesn't it? It becomes anger, it becomes resentment, or even despair. And potentially can result in causing a person to just turn away from God. It's so sad to me to think of how many people, and I've heard a lot of stories of people who have just turned their back on God, Because at some point in their life, they endured a a hurt, a great disappointment that was very real. But they didn't go to God with it. They just kind of tucked it away, turned away. (laughs) I don't need this God. I don't need this God. He hurt me. I'm better off without him. Well, can I lovingly ask you, how's that working out for you? (laughs) If you're in that place, I encourage you to just think about what you hear this morning. Know that God is always available to hear you. As Josh said this morning, anybody can cry out to Jesus, and he will hear. And I want you to know that God alone can offer you the healing. God alone can offer you the grace for the healing that you need. Okay, verse 33, let's move on. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. This verse in the Bible is very well known and very appreciated by a lot of people. This is such a tender scene. But I want to entertain a question. You might think it's obvious, but let's be sure. Why is Jesus weeping? Why do you think he's weeping? He's not weeping for Lazarus. We need to be clear on that. He knows he's about to raise this man back to life. 
So he is not sorrowing that his good friend has died. He knows what he's about to do. It would be clear, certainly, that he's weeping with these sisters. These beloved friends of his were grieving. They were hurting. And he's joining with them in their sorrow. But also, I would suspect, his sorrow is over the brokenness in the world as well. How many scenes has Jesus been present at of people sobbing and weeping? Um, So I want to just pursue this a little bit further, so bear with me, because there's another emotion that's mentioned in this passage. Look closely at verse 33. We're going to look at the Greek meanings of two words. The first, deeply moved and troubled. The Greek word for deeply moved is, I'm not going to try to say it because <laughs> I don't know how. <laughs> um, but it's the Greek word there, and it means moved with anger. It means to be indignant. And the word indignant is synonymous with outraged, furious. Jesus is not just kind of mad here. He's furious. And then the word troubled comes from the Greek word that means agitated. Agitated. And so if you look at the verse, it tells us Jesus is deeply moved with anger and he's agitated in response to seeing these people crying Mary weeping at his feet, and the others weeping and crying. This would have been loud wailing. They were mourning. Um, What would cause Jesus to be so angry and agitated in response to seeing people in pain? Maybe it's not what. Maybe we should ask who. Jesus knows that pain and sorrow and death are the result of Satan's handiwork. He's seen it all through time. And now he's seeing his beloved friends in such pain, knowing that their pain is ultimately called, caused by Satan. Now, we don't blame everything that goes wrong in our lives on Satan, but he's the author of evil, and he is the one who introduced brokenness into our world. So ultimately, it falls on him. For Jesus to be seeing this, he would have been agitated. He would have been angry. Not at these dear people, but at the enemy. The enemy he knows who is the cause of all this. But he also knows the outcome here. He knows what he's about to do, so try to think with me. He knows he's about to raise Lazarus, but he also cares deeply about the pain of these people. Jesus' heart breaks over the painful effects of sin and death in all of our lives. This brings us to the third point and the final point. The third thing to know about God in your disappointment is that God is with you in your disappointment. Can we think that in all caps? God is with you in your disappointment. And this makes me think of uh, Matthew 123, where it's familiar to read at Christmas time that we're told that this Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's who he is. And this promise of God with us can be found throughout the entire Bible. I would love to list, but I'm not going (laughs) to because there's a lot. But it's given through all the scriptures. And we can point out one of them, Matthew 28, when Jesus is ascending to heaven. 
And he's commissioning his disciples to go and make more disciples. He said, and lo, I am with you always. That's his last words to us before leaving the earth. I am with you always. And here in this situation with Lazarus and these sisters, we see Jesus living out God with us in a very amazing way. Jesus is so with these dear people in their grief that his righteous anger is stirred. And don't you ever feel agitated when you look at the brokenness in the world? I mean, every day you turn the news on and hear about some heartbreaking situation. It brings us to tears. And then doesn't it stir your anger a little bit? This isn't right. This, why is this happening? When you're feeling this feeling, I'm not saying you should all go out and be angry. <laughs> the point is righteous anger. When it's anger over people's pain. And you're not angry at anyone except that one evil one who is the source of it. When you're feeling these feelings, you're connecting with the very heart of God. Because Jesus was angry and sorrowful at the same time, just like you. God is with you. Verse um, John, I'm sorry, John, 1 John, <laughs> 1 John 3, 8. Jesus knows why he came. 1 John tells us the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. That's why he came. And in this moment, in this scene, Jesus is on his way to the cross in a matter of weeks or months. And so here we see Jesus standing in this place of death. He's surrounded by grieving, hurting people, about to go to the tomb of his friend. He's standing in the place of death, but he is no helpless bystander. He is the resurrection and the life, standing in the midst of death. He is with these dear friends of his then, and he's with us now the same way. My dear brothers and sisters, the one who conquered death is the one who is with you in your grief today. Let's do verse 38. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Again, the four days. We're getting that point. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Verse 41. So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. So once again, Jesus is concerned with people's faith that they believe that he is who he says he is, that he's talking to his Father in heaven and making it clear that apparently he and the Father have already talked about this. He says, you have heard me. So this is even further evidence that this plan was prearranged between Jesus and his Father, this plan of raising Lazarus. Verse 43, when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. 
Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Now, this entire passage that we've been talking through is building up to this very point and how simple, how simple it is. It's my favorite uh, words in this whole passage. Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out. And that is resurrection power that we sang about this morning. So this story is amazing. We will come back to uh, a little bit more in John 11 in a few minutes. But just let's see what we've looked at here. We've seen the power and authority of the creator of all things fully immersed in the most vulnerable place of humanity, the grieving human heart. That's our Savior. That's our Jesus. And we can also see I think you would agree that truly God was glorified as Martha and Mary got their brother back. And some of you might think, like I have at times, how nice for them. (laughs) Um, Doesn't usually go that way for the rest of us, does it? I'm going to move now to a personal story of painful disappointment in my own life. You remember this guy. (laughs) About 18 years ago, our son Kevin was being deployed to Iraq as a new Marine. That very day, after saying goodbye to him tearfully on the phone, I had a conversation with God about faith and trust. Do you have conversations with God? I know some of you do, but I understand it might be a foreign thing to others, and that's okay. Just know that I'm not talking about hearing a loud, shouting voice from heaven. I'm talking about God's still small voice that speaks to our heart and speaks to our mind, and we can talk back to him. So I'm talking with God because, you know, in all the years of raising my children, I had trusted God many times in many situations, but now my son was on his way to a war zone, and I was scared. So I remember pacing the floor. I remember saying to God, I want to say I trust you. I want to say I trust you. But what does it mean, honestly, to trust you in this situation? I said, Lord, I'm fully confident you are able, (laughs) you are fully able to keep Kevin home safe, bring him home safe. But will you? Will you? Will you promise me now that you're going to keep Kevin home, keep Kevin safe? Well, there was silence. I said, oh, no guarantees. Well, how can I say I trust you when I don't know what you're going to do? What am I trusting you for? This time, God responded to me. What are you trusting me for? Do you only trust me when I promise to give you what you want? Or do you trust me because I'm God? I said, well... I know I can trust you to carry out your plan. (laughs) But what if, God, what if it's your plan to take my son from me? And again, God responded, okay, what if? What if it were my plan to take Kevin home to be with me? Because he said that's where he'd be, you know. (laughs) He said, what would that mean? Would that mean I cease to be God? And I said, no, (laughs) no. 
He said, would that mean everything you've ever believed about me is no longer true? I said, no, of course not, Lord. I believe you are God, and I believe you are good, and your goodness never changes, no matter my circumstances. I know that. Well, then, very much like Martha, I went on to recite to God some of the things that I knew to be true about him. I said, I know you are always good. I know Kevin has put his faith in you. And so, since Kevin and I share the same faith in Jesus for our salvation, I know that we'll be in heaven together someday, someday, Lord. (laughs) And I said, Lord, I know you love me, and I know you love Kevin, and I know you have your plan. And one final confession I made, I said, Lord, and I know Kevin doesn't belong to me. (laughs) Our children don't belong to us, do they? I said, I know he's yours. He's yours. But I said, Lord, I'm afraid of the pain. If it were your plan to take Kevin from me, I couldn't bear that pain. And God answered me one last time. He said, Kathy, whatever you might have to endure because of Kevin, I will be with you. I will carry you. So through this conversation, I was able to entrust my son into God's hands. I still didn't know what the future would hold. God gave me no indication of what might or might not happen. But I did know that I can always trust God simply to be who he is. And he had given me his personal promise in my conversation with him. And it's that same promise I alluded to earlier that's all through the scriptures. He promised to always be with me no matter what might happen. And so through this, I experienced a deep confidence that God was holding everything, the whole situation. And my faith was strengthened, and my fear was replaced with his peace. Well, it turns out Kevin came home safely from that deployment, and we all celebrated. We had such a celebration. Um, But of course... We know that this is how it goes with the deployments during wartime. There was a second deployment months later. And the months passed while our whole church was praying. This entire church, we prayed for all of the um, loved ones of people who were fighting in the war in Iraq. So when Kevin was nearing the end of his second deployment, We were anticipating his homecoming. But then it was on February 19th, the year 2005. It was a Saturday morning. Phil and I received that visit that no military family wants to receive. Two uniformed Marines and a Navy chaplain were at our door. And we let them into our home to give us the news that our son, Corporal Kevin Clark, had been killed earlier that day in a firefight with enemy insurgents. Needless to say, my whole being just went numb with shock and disbelief. How can this be? How can this be? I kept muttering to myself. 
And in that situation, in that moment, it's like time stood still. I, I felt like I was inside of myself, and I didn't even know what was going on around me. But one thought did come racing into my mind, a holy thought. I said to myself, well, I know where he is. I know he's with Jesus right now. Because of the hope of eternal life, I knew. I had confidence. I will see my son again. This hope gave me strength to get through that day and every day since for the last 17 years. The very next day after this, it was a Sunday morning now, and God gave us a glimpse of um, some kind of purpose that he seemed to have in this terrible, terrible situation. Kevin's first sergeant in Iraq had sent my husband, Phil, an email that morning in which he explained that Kevin and other Marines had been taking a course on world religions over there in the Iraqi desert, this course offered by their chaplain. And for this course, for their final grade, they were required to write an essay answering the question, what's my religion? What's my religion? And for this, uh, we learned that Kevin had written out his testimony of his faith in Jesus Christ. And this was included with this email. Now, Kevin would have written this essay on his laptop and downloaded it onto a disk, um, but he had no access to a printer. Only the higher-up officers uh, could access printers. So on the day that he went on that mission, the mission that ended his life, before leaving, he handed the disk off to one of his staff sergeants, asking him to print it out for him. Then he went on the mission. And later that day, while the Marines were gathered together reflecting on what had happened to Kevin, the staff sergeant realized that he had Kevin's written testimony of his faith. Well, that testimony was read aloud the next morning at their worship service that was held in an abandoned boxcar. And eventually, the testimony was circulated among all the Marines in the entire unit and across military websites that were all over the world. So this was truly amazing to us. But what was really amazing, uh, you need to understand, is that, and the Marines confirmed this with us later, that there was no logical reason for Kevin to ask to have his essay printed before he left on that mission. Why didn't he just plan to wait and do it when he got back? The first sergeant in his email to us and his words said, this was something, I believe, from above. In other words, this was a God thing. It was God who prompted Kevin, in one way or another, get this essay printed so that it got passed around and so that it came to us. It was an incredible joy and gift to have his written testimony in our hands the very next day after we got this dreadful news. Otherwise, we may have never have found it. Or if we did, it might have been six months later that we found it on his laptop. So this was a gift to us from God. We were in awe of God reading this email. I remember my initial thought, God is in this. God is here. He's with us. It was becoming more and more clear that God had a plan and a purpose for allowing this terrible tragedy. The purpose was the spreading of the gospel 
through our son's testimony of faith. This lifted our hearts, and it gave us courage to just move forward. But nothing takes the pain away. Every day I grappled with that nagging thought. It wasn't supposed to be this way. And every day I experienced God's comforting presence. And just as this whole church had been praying for Kevin on deployment, now they continued praying for us. And they all, many of you all, rallied around us with such love and compassion that I will never forget. I experienced the unfailing love of God through the people of God, as well as through many of my own intimate conversations with God and the days that followed as I read his word and I journaled my thoughts and my feelings in God's presence. My faith was deepened as I saw God's faithfulness every day. He was carrying me just as he promised. And I was able to look back on that conversation about faith with deep gratitude because I could recognize that this was God's loving care in preparing me for what was going to come. It was God's grace to me to settle in my heart and mind what faith really meant, that it means believing in who God is, having complete confidence in the person of God, not about knowing what's going to be the outcome of a situation. Well, it was about 12 years later. I need to add one little, another piece of the story. God led me to a deeper place of healing that I didn't even know I needed. I was beginning to notice that I was feeling a distance from God, and I didn't understand why. And at this same time, I had begun taking um, a course, a spiritual formation course through Moody Bible Institute. And for this course, we were reading lots of books and articles and um, on the subject of believing that we are God's beloved. Now, as Christians, we, well, I know that God loves me, but how often do we realize there's something that we're believing in our head, but in our life, maybe we're not really living it out. And that was where I was at with uh, knowing the love of God at this particular time. But through taking this course, I was beginning to make some progress in believing that I truly am God's beloved. Well, one day, while I was on a retreat that was part of this course, um, just bear with me, please, as I try to explain this. I'm on a retreat, and I'm in a little dorm room all by myself, having some quiet time with God. And I was looking over some articles that I've been reading that were actually about the raising of Lazarus in John chapter 11. I was finding myself intrigued by Mary and her emotional vulnerability with Jesus. At the same time, I had also been reading over some notes and some journaling, some essay assignments that I had written, um, and I was noticing that a lot of the things that God put on my heart to write about were things regarding Kevin. And I was puzzled as to why, at this particular time, while I'm on this retreat learning about the love of God, Kevin kept coming to my mind. So again, I remember sitting in that room all by myself, enjoying some interaction with God and reading all these different things about the love of God and the loss of Kevin. And things rolling around in my head, and all at once it seemed like it all, like going, coming into a funnel and coming together. And 
all at once, I blurted out to the Lord. No one was there to witness it, but I think I said it out loud. Yes, I am your beloved, and you hurt me. You hurt me, Jesus. <laughs> it was the first time I had said that. And now I could completely relate to Mary falling at Jesus' feet with her great disappointment in him. Let me try to explain this in case it might sound confusing. There's a distinction here that's subtle. For years, for 12 years, I had been honestly expressing to God my pain over the loss of Kevin. But I had never directly acknowledged to him, to God, that I was deeply disappointed in him for taking my son. It's kind of like I needed to look him in the eye and say, you hurt me, Jesus. You hurt me. So as I come to this realization, I could see that there was a resentment toward God that had been building up in my soul over the years. And this was creating the distance that I had been feeling. Once I told God honestly about the pain of my disappointment in him, <laughs> and this involved about an hour of crying and sobbing in his presence, but I experienced freedom as those walls of resentment just came tumbling down, and my heart drew near to God once again. It was that immediate. So I praised God at that time, and I continue to praise God today for bringing me to that place of healing that I didn't even know I needed. My dear brothers and sisters, God always has a plan. He always has a plan and a purpose, and he is faithful and kind to accomplish his purposes for his glory and for our good. And what is for our good is the building of our faith. Well, I'm going to try to bring us to a conclusion now. I'd like you to go back to your Bible, if you would, in John chapter 11. We're going to just tie up a few little verses in John chapter 11. Let's consider the outcome of Lazarus' story. First of all, Martha and Mary, how do you think their faith would have been impacted by seeing their dead brother come walking out of the tomb? I kind of lightheartedly imagine Martha... Um, we're not told specifics about Martha, but if you just think of the situation, I can imagine that she never forgot Jesus' words to her. Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Can you imagine me with me? <laughs> uh, Martha and Mary escorting their brother Lazarus back to the house. Okay, we're coming home from the tomb now. <laughs> Let's have something to eat. Can you imagine Martha? chuckling to herself, smiling to herself as she's serving a meal to her brother Lazarus. And maybe she's muttering, did I not tell you <laughs> that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? That's just my imagination. But we are told a little bit about Mary. We have a hint. We're told, as we, we came upon this earlier, Mary anointed the feet of Jesus with expensive perfume after this raising of Lazarus. There was a meal that the family was together with Jesus at this meal. And we're told that Mary, Mary did this act of um, pouring perfume on Jesus. Well, in Matthew 26, where that is recorded, 
Jesus specifically said that Mary did this to prepare Jesus for his burial. This is a hint to me of her, her deepening faith because the apostles to the day Jesus went to the cross were not understanding what Jesus has come to do. This act of Mary to anoint her Savior before his, his crucifixion was an act of deep devotion and deep faith. Was she one of the few who actually did understand that Jesus came to die for her, for her sins? Okay, I'd like you to look at verse 45. This is just picking up where we left off. And this says, Therefore, many of the Jews who came to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. Believed in him. These people came to saving faith. These people went home changed. They came there <laughs> with the intention of mourning over a death. They went home celebrating a life. So imagine the impact on them. Certainly, these would have been people who had heard about Jesus. They knew of his ministry. They maybe even have seen some of his miracles earlier. But now, they witnessed his resurrection power, raising this man who had been buried for four days. They saw and they believed that this truly is the Son of God. But then verse 46, there were others. <laughs> but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. These dear people were blind to the power and the glory of God in their very presence. I want to encourage you, if you're in that kind of place, don't be them. <laughs> don't stay there today. Don't miss who Jesus is. And then we see a final outcome given to us further down in verse 53. It says, so from that day on, they, meaning the religious leaders, they planned together to kill Jesus. So this miraculous sign that Jesus was so completely intentional about doing right down to the timing, this led to his actual crucifixion which then resulted in Jesus' own resurrection from the dead, which made a way for all who believe to experience eternal life. This teaches us, this passage about dear Lazarus, that our resurrection hope is Jesus. And he's alive. He's alive. And he's with us. He's with us today. And he's in this room. I'm going to close us in prayer. And then after I pray, we want to allow some quiet space for all of you to talk to God in your own heart. Wherever you're at, just sit with, Jesus, with God, with the Lord. And I'm asking you this question. Where do you see yourself in this story? Where do you see yourself? Are you one among the group who has heard about Jesus? You've kind of known about him. Maybe you've been hanging around with Christians. Maybe you're kind of coming to church for a while and you kind of like it. But maybe you've never come face to face with who Jesus really is. He's inviting you to know him right now. You could go home changed.
Or maybe you're one who has a, a very um, vibrant relationship with Jesus, like Mary and Martha. You know him, truly. Is he inviting you to a deeper place in your faith today? Maybe in regards to something you're going through, maybe your heart is resonating with his words, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Or maybe, maybe you're one who is just so deeply disappointed today someone that Josh described earlier, you're just overwhelmed with the pain in your life and you can't even see past it. I know there are real situations. There are real disappointments that are heavy. And you're in that place of saying, Lord, it wasn't supposed to be this way. It wasn't supposed to be this way. Where were you? Why didn't you? You could have. You should have. Lord, you hurt me. Lord, you hurt me. Wherever you're at, whatever is stirring in your heart this morning, I invite you to respond to Jesus in the quietness of your own heart. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, how I thank you for this sacred time. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your Holy Spirit who teaches us. And I thank you for Mary and Martha and Lazarus. So many things we can learn from them. Thank you for this story. I want to just pray for each one of us here, Lord. You know every single heart. You know where we're at. You know what we need. You know our joys. You know our sorrows. Lord, would you speak to each one? Would you speak to each precious person in this room today by your Holy Spirit? Would we all hear your voice? Would we recognize your truth? Lord, um, open our minds, open our hearts to understand your scriptures. May we hear you and receive you. Father, may we feel your loving, comforting embrace in the midst of our pain. Be with each one this morning, Lord, and may, may many of us go home changed today. In your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen.